You remember uh, we talked about the, the four horsemen, and then uh, we had to take a break. I can't, we came back, and I actually kind of jumped ahead, uh, thinking we had covered all of six. So we did all of seven last time, but I want to go back now and finish six. You remember the, uh, John has the vision into heaven, and there's a scroll, and there is, uh, there's some, some anxiety because who can open the scroll? The scroll has the answers. The, the scroll uh, unfolds God's plan. And there's nobody to open the scroll. What are, what are we going to do? And then the lamb is uh, revealed. Here, here's the lamb. He, he is the one who can open the scroll. And so they, he starts to uh, break the seals. There's seven seals. The seventh seal is actually going to be seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet will be seven bowls. And so we see kind of a progression here. Um, some interpreters see the seals and the trumpets and the bowls as talking about the same thing. Uh, just using kind of different imagery so that those, those three things would overlap. The, the, the seals, the, the trumpets, and the bowls would really talk about the same events, just using three different images to help us get that. Other interpreters see it more like a telescope where first we're looking at uh, the seals. And then we extend it a little bit, and we look at the trumpets, and then we extend it a little bit, and we look at the, at the bowls. And I, for me, I think that's probably a better interpretation, that it's, it's, not, it's not really looking at the same seven things in three different ways, but it's six things happen, the six seals then the seventh seal actually are six new things, or I shouldn't say new, perhaps I should say harsher. <laughs> it's some of the same kind of stuff, but it gets worse. And then the seventh trumpet is six more, pouring out the bowls and some really nasty stuff. So all that to say, I believe that as, as each uh, seal is broken. He's describing what's, what's going to happen in sequence. And tonight when we get to the last seal, that leads us to the next series of events, which will be described for us in chapter 8 in, uh, in the idea of the trumpets. All right? With that in mind, we're in verse 9. He has already opened the first four seals. 
And each time he broke a seal, a horse would, would ride in. And the rider on that horse represented something for us. Usually on your little handout for notes, I leave it blank so you can write whatever you want. This time I started your notes off for you because I wanted you to see something that I think is very interesting as it compares Matthew chapter 24 with Revelation chapter 6. Now when I talk to, when I say the Sermon on the Mount, that mental bookmark should go off for you and you should basically know where to find the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know, does anybody remember where the Sermon on the Mount is in Scripture? Five, six, and seven. Yes. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Later in Matthew, he sits not, it, it's not referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, but he sits again and he teaches again, and we call it the Olivet Discourse. It's a teaching there at the, uh, among the olive trees. It's an Olivet Discourse. All right? That's recorded for us in Matthew 24. It's also recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. But if you look at the Olivet Discourse recorded in 24, similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but a completely different time, completely different setting, different speech, different purpose. When you look at that, isn't it interesting how that compares to Revelation 6? Jesus first talks about that false Christs will come. And in Revelation 6, the first rider of the horse, there was a white horse representing for us a uh, false peace. Uh, false messiahs would promise this peace that would happen. Then Jesus talks about wars. And in Revelation 6, the red horse shows up, which is a description of war. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus then talks about famines. Well, it's interesting because the very next thing in Revelation 6 is the black horse, which represented famine. Jesus then talked about death. And the next horse that shows up in Revelation 6 is the pale horse, which is death. So we, we see that Jesus is apparently describing the very same events that are described for us in John's vision in Revelation 6. Tonight we'll cover those last two. As Jesus talked about martyrs, so does uh, John's vision include martyrs. And then there is worldwide chaos in Jesus' description of the, uh, the events at the end of time. And we see that very same chaos represented here in Revelation 6. All right, so he has broken four seals. Each time he breaks a seal, a new horse shows up, and we've seen those horses. Now, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. What's interesting to me right off the bat is that he sees an altar the reason I find that interesting is thus far he has been in a throne room, not the temple. He's been in a throne room. You remember that, that uh, 
he has he has seen uh, the Lamb who stepped forward, and and God is on the throne, and the living creatures are all around, and the elders are there. Um, but here is a throne room with an altar, and it would be very easy for us to get really hung up on, is this a king's throne room or is this the temple? And I want to remind you that this is a vision. This is apocalyptic literature, which means that it is symbolic, among a lot of other things. So it's kind of like a dream. You ever have a dream where someone you know 20 years ago is talking to somebody that you know today or someone that you know today is walking around in the house that you grew up in, something like that, where the two don't really match in reality. That's how I see the altar in the throne room. It's not a big deal. It's, it's, it's apocalyptic. It's symbolic. It's a powerful image. And so John is we might say transferred in his, in his imagery from the throne room to the altar. The altar, very similar to that, that described for us in the Old Testament, the temple, where animals were sacrificed. When they sacrificed the animals, the blood would first run down the altar and and gather, what's the better word, collect, gather uh, around the foot of the altar. Yeah, what are you saying? What, what are you suggesting? Collect, yeah. You, 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 you get what I'm saying. Um, pool. Who said pool? All right, you get the award. Bing, you, get the, you get the prize. It would pool around the altar. But not only would it just run off from natural bloodletting and, and the, the gore of that, that it would pool there at the altar, but they would also actually pour blood into that place around the base of the altar, uh, which very well could be what Paul means when he says uh, to, to young Timothy, when he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He could be referring to his life's blood as being poured out. But that's, that's the image here. This is the altar, um, similar to the one at the temple where sacrifices are made. And so you see at the last part of verse 9, it says uh, that I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Just like the animals were sacrificed and their life's blood. Remember the Old Testament is very clear that life and blood go together. Blood is life. And so when, when the blood is poured out and pooled around that altar, it means they gave their life. Now here, if he sees souls poured out at the foot of the altar, that means they gave their lives. He's talking about martyrs. He's talking about those people who were willing to die for the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel. It says that it, these are the souls of those who had been slain. In other words, they didn't die natural deaths. They were killed. They were martyred 
for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They were killed for what they said about Jesus. Now, I think what's happening here is um, there, there are those, even as we get into the time of the tribulation, either the church is there and we're going through this, or these are people who are getting saved during the tribulation. Either way, you have Christians now who are telling people, folks, the reason things are getting so bad for us right now, the reason that we have seen war and famine and death in the first horsemen that came, the reason things are so bad is because God is judging us. God is, is pouring out his wrath on us, and you guys better get right before the day is done and we don't have any more time left and it's too late for you. Well, guess what? People don't like to hear that they're sinners. Did you know that? <laughs> is that a shock? People don't like to hear that they're sinning. And they persecute those who say sin is sin. Let's be honest, we haven't really experienced a whole lot of that yet. But we will. These are people who, it could be Christians throughout the ages, but it is at least those who were telling the folks during the first part of the tribulation, the reason things are bad is because God is punishing us and you need to get right with him. You need to believe in Jesus before it's too late. Those folks wouldn't listen and they persecuted the Christians, therefore they were martyred. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice. These are the souls who've been poured out at the foot of the altar. They are crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. By the way, this, this is not, when it says the word Lord here, this is not kurios, which is the, the Greek word that we usually use for Lord, for Lord God Almighty. This is the word that is, uh, is the word that we get our word despot from. This is um, the all-powerful king, the master of everybody. Okay? It's, it's, not, it's not the holy Lord as much as it is. This is the guy who has all the power. And he uses that word for him, O Sovereign, which, which basically means all-powerful, the one who is in control. O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? A couple of reactions when we hear the martyrs say that. How long till you, till you avenge us? We have a couple of reactions. One is there's a connection to the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, where we hear people in the Old Testament cry out, How long, God, do I have to go through this? And I think we can learn from those Old Testament saints who cried out, how long? And from the martyrs here, 
I think we learn an important question to ask. When we're persecuted, when we have done what's right and we've said what's true and we get persecuted for it, you and I would be tempted to say, why, God? But wouldn't a better question be, God, how long till you make this right? Because that's a statement of faith. That's saying, God, I know you're going to make this right. I know it. So my question is not, why are you letting this happen? As much as it is, how long do I have to endure until I get to see that you're going to make this right? Every once in a while, I suggest to you just a, a fun little homework assignment. And if, if, if you're sitting around looking for something to study, go back through the Old Testament and see how many times people ask the question, how long, Lord? And you'll see it's a very common question. These are the martyrs, and they're asking that question, how long until, until you avenge our blood? Which takes us to the second reaction that we might have when we hear them say this. These are Christians. Well, Christians are supposed to forgive. We're supposed to have mercy. And they're crying out for vengeance. We might have that initial reaction of, this doesn't sound right. Why are these martyrs asking God to get people? But understand again the question. They're not crying out, God, will you please avenge them? They're saying, how long until? Because they know that God has already promised that his wrath will come on those who reject him. He's already promised that he will protect and provide for those who trust him. So they're not saying, please avenge them. They know it's already going to happen because he said it would. They're just saying, how long do we have to wait until we see justice? And so they cry out with a loud voice, sovereign Lord, you're holy and true. Holy means what he's doing is right. And true means he, he said he would, so we know he will. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Eleven, then, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. They're given the white robe. The white robe is symbolic of the glory of heaven, symbolic of uh, cleansing that that. I see this, that, that, that he is taking them out of their shed blood. And he gives them now a new garment. You know how white just, just reflects the light and, and, and it just, it's going to add to the glory of heaven. If they were wearing dark, you, you know how that works. Dark clothes kind of attract the light, and, they, and it kind of sucks in the light. You ever do that when you're a kid? Of course, we don't have enough snow around here to do it. But if we ever had ice or snow, you could take a piece of white paper and a piece of black paper and set it outside on the snow, and then you go out a little bit later, and you see that the black paper is deeper in the snow because it is kind of attracted and held on to the light and the heat and the energy where the white reflects it all. 
So imagine everybody in heaven now is given the white robes and it just, ref, just reflects and refracts. That's a good fun word. All the, all the light and the glory in heaven. So they're taken out of their blood and they're cleansed and given a white robe. And then notice what he says. Each were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Scripture says that when we wind up in heaven that we get to rest from our labors. He says to them, the time's not right yet, but you've made it here. You get to rest. You know, people use rest in peace all the time when someone passes. You... You do know, and I, and, and I mean this just, just with as much love as I can give you, you do know that only those who are believers actually rest in peace. That rest is only promised to those who are believers. There are many people who pass away, and we put RIP on that Facebook post or that, twi that tweet, and they'll not find rest. These are the martyrs who have not only been faithful, but have been faithful unto death. And now they receive the crown of life. They get the white robe and they get to rest from their labors. He says, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Unfortunately, that means that there are still some who, um, who are expected to die. There are more martyrs to come. There will be more people who continue to speak the truth and who continue to be persecuted for it. And so he says, just rest. Time's not here yet. So in, uh, in the last part of chapter 6, we get... We get the four horsemen and the first four seals. Then we get a glimpse into heaven to see the reaction or the result of that. And then we get a glimpse of earth. We've seen this, this glimpse of heaven in the fifth seal. This is what's happening up there as a result of the horsemen coming and, and the, uh, uh, the, 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 the tribulation that's happening. But now we move to the sixth seal where we look down on the earth and see what's happening there. When he opened the sixth seal, and by the way, MacArthur argues, and I think it's, I th I think it's worth bearing, MacArthur argues that when we move to the sixth seal, we're actually moving into um, the second half of the tribulation. There, the tribulation seems to be divided into two times. The tribulation is seven years. The first half of that, three and a half years, is bad. The last three and a half is even badder. That's what it says in Greek. The, we often call that the great tribulation. As if the first three and a half years of tribulation wasn't 
bad enough. Now we got the great tribulation. MacArthur, under, and when I say MacArthur, I'm talking about John MacArthur. He, he suggests that the, the first five seals represent what's happening in the first three and a half. And then there is the uh, ab abomination of desolation. We'll get into that later. But there's an, a big, scary, hairy event that leads us into the last half of the tribulation. And he sees the sixth seal as leading us into that time. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And we could see that uh, clearly God is ramping things up. It, it, it's obvious that he is now not only punishing men with war and famine, but now all of creation is being affected by his wrath. There, there are earthquakes that are taking place. There's, it, this is leading up to something, uh, something that is clearly awful. He opened that sixth seal. John says, now instead of looking at what's happening in heaven, I look down to see what's happening on earth, and there's this great earthquake. I think it's important that the, that the description starts with the earthquake because that might explain some of the other images that we see next. If you can imagine this great earthquake where all of those... Um, all of those plates underground, they're all shifting back and forth. And so the, the, all of the earth is basically just, you know, being shaken to its core. You can imagine what might happen in that situation is that all of that lava that's playing around down there, it's going to start shooting out of all the volcanoes. There's clearly, you know, there, we know that there is a clear connection to volcanic activity and seismic activity that when there's earthquakes and volcanoes that's all connected so one explanation of what's starting to happen is this massive earthquake causes all of the volcanoes to erupt everywhere which sends ash throughout the atmosphere so it says the sun became black as sackcloth. Why? It could be because the ash throughout the atmosphere is blocking the sunlight. And then it says the full moon became like blood. Well, again, with all of that, all the, the, the stuff now from the, the ash and the, the smoke and all the stuff in the atmosphere, when you do see the sun, it shines through, I mean the moon, it shines through all of that and has a red tint. That's a very common explanation of, of what he's describing. It says the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And before, before we get too strict in literal interpretation, remember that most stars are a heck of a lot bigger than the earth. So it would be hard for a true star to fall to the earth. It would destroy the earth before it ever got close to the earth. So what might he be talking about? Do we ever use the term falling stars? 
when we know it's not really stars? Meteors, right? It's probably a meteor shower. It appears like stars are falling to the earth. That's, that's the perception. We even use that phrase for it. I think one real possibility is that as God begins now to move past all warning, he, the time of grace is gone. He lets loose all of the powers that have been wanting to, to come in and shake the world up. He finally lets loose of those powers and allows uh, that to happen so that he begins to pour out his wrath in a powerful way and that manifests itself as the whole earth begins to shake in this awful earthquake. Volcanoes erupt, blacken the sun. Even at night, the moon looks really weird red and, and meteor showers are falling all over the place. It's an incredibly scary time. Yes, I had forgotten when we were in what we call the old sanctuary. I had forgotten that. Was that Leroy? It was the new sanctuary. It was the new sanctuary. The old sanctuary was an ambulance that we stopped in the middle of church and prayed for. Um, yeah, you're right. You're right. It was the new sanctuary. But didn't, didn't they find a piece like at Leroy or somewhere out there? So, yeah, and it was, yeah, it was relatively small. Uh, but you're right, the sound, there's definitely sound that's going to be a part of that. So just imagine the sights, the sounds, the, the, the smells of that volcanic ash everywhere. Just, it's going to be an incredibly frightening time when God moves now into the harshest part of uh, trying to wake people up so that they would see his power. And if they won't follow him out of love, maybe they will at least turn to him out of fear. And he shakes up the entire creation trying to get them to see the truth. So stars are falling from the sky, which I think is, is probably a meteor shower. It says that happens as fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. You can just see all the little, all the little fruit falling when you shake a tree. And, you know, for, in Texas, we'd probably picture more like a pecan tree or something. You, know, you, you shake that thing good enough, you can get those, those pecans to fall. And, and it, that's the way that it looked like stars were falling. 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. He saw in his vision something happened in the sky. Uh, I don't know if I can even, I don't know if I can even um, express what that might have, what might have caused that. But in his mind, the sky, now understand this is not heaven. He's not tearing up heaven to create a new heaven. That's a misunderstanding of this text. That'll happen later. New heavens later. This is not heaven. This is the sky. This is the atmosphere. Something happens in the atmosphere that looks like it's just being ripped apart. Um, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
earthquakes again just ripping this, the earth apart and mountains are falling in on themselves. Islands are disappearing, I'm thinking probably underwater, probably because of these great tsunamis that are, that are formed from the earthquakes. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. This is so, this is so bad that everyone from the most powerful king all the way down, see how he kind of walks us down through the kinds of people, all the way down to the slave and the, and the common man. Everybody is now hiding in caves and under rocks because their world is literally falling apart around them. Um, Vance Havner is a, it's a, a, he was a preacher a long time ago. He, he was a guy who really had uh, a sense of humor and, and wit about him. And he said when, when this time happens, um, that the most valuable piece of real estate in the world is going to be a hole in the ground because it'll be a place where you can hide, a place where you can be safe. And so these, all these people are diving under rocks and in the, in the cracks and in the, in the caves to, to try to protect themselves. It says in 16, then calling to mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? It is going to be an awful time. Remember that there are those who are saying to these very people, believe in Jesus, trust in Christ, turn, it's not too late. But these are the ones who refuse. They are hearing, but they refuse. And in their refusal, God shakes up their world. They hide in the caves and under the rocks, and they start saying to the boulders, please fall on me and just kill me and put me out of my misery. I'd rather have a boulder just fall on me and take me out than to go through any more of this terrible day of wrath. couple of things there caught my attention as I read through that last two verses. He says, the, the, the people say, fall on us to the rocks. They're crying out to the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. It's so interesting to me that they want to hide from God. This is the last book of the Bible, right? This is Revelation. You remember what happened in the first book of the Bible? Yeah. Adam and Eve are hanging out with God every afternoon. They're going for walks. They're watching The Price is Right and drinking Dr. Pepper together every afternoon. And then something happens. Eve 
is deceived and Adam makes a choice to join her in her deception. And then what happens to their relationship to God? Instead of hanging out, now they're hiding out. You remember it said they hid themselves. And God comes in the, in the garden for the afternoon walk and he says, dude, where are you? Adam says, well, I'm naked, so I hid. Their sin caused such a separation in their, what was supposed to be communion, what was supposed to be relationship. Their sin caused such a separation, they had to hide from the holy, almighty God. And now, that's the beginning, the beginning of time. Now fast forward to the end of time and man is doing the very same thing. Because of sin, they want to hide from the face of the almighty and powerful God. So it says, you know, rocks, come and kill me. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. But then look at the last, that next phrase. They not only want to be hidden from God on the throne, but from the wrath of the lamb the lamb lambs lambs are not scary why not why not the lion he's the lion of the tribe of judah why don't they refer to him as the wrath of the lion we think of jesus meek and mild Calling the little children to himself. Remember, it was that very same Jesus that called the children to himself who turned over the tables and ran the people out in fear and said, this place is a house of prayer. There is a time for righteous wrath and the Holy One knows that time better than anyone. He is the lamb who was slain. We've already recognized him now in, in Revelation 6. He's been recognized as the lamb who's worthy to open the scroll. Therefore, the people say, I'm scared of that lamb. That lamb died. He was meek and humble, but he's also powerful. And so the people are saying, to the rocks, hide us from the face of God the Father and from the wrath of God the Lamb, God the Son. It's interesting, too, that he uses a phrase in verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. The great day of their wrath has, has come. Throughout, um, throughout a great deal of prophecy, there is a reference to the day of the Lord. Sometimes that phrase is used to represent something that God is going to do soon in the prophet's lifetime. That one of these days, Babylon is going to come and you know, tear us up. There's, there's going to be a day of the Lord when he actually works. But also in prophecy, 
that phrase is used to talk about a future event that will be the ultimate day of the Lord. When, the, when God pours out all of his wrath and he, find, he, he brings justice, the ultimate day of the Lord will come. We find about the, that ultimate day in Joel 2, Zechariah 14, Malachi 4. There's even a reference to it in Acts 2, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 2nd Peter. All talk about the day of the Lord. While this doesn't use that phrase, that is how I interpret I think that's what he's talking about. For the great day of their wrath, that day, that time period, however long that might be, that day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Um, in other words, they know that they are helpless. That God has shaken their world so dramatically. They know they can't stand before him. And the truth is, spiritually speaking, none of us can. So we can either accept his mercy and grace now. We can't stand before him on our own. We can receive his grace and mercy now. Or at the end of time, there will be those who still can't stand before him, but the time of grace and mercy are past. So John gives, uh, John gives a, a very harsh vision of what's happening on the earth as God begins the, the worst time of the tribulation.